We're continuing with this book, uh, Being Dharma, and this is a, a section called Seeing Dharma, and this particular talk is called Kandanya Knows. We're continuing this from uh, before. Practice really has to depend on steadfastness and patient endurance. Some people start to practice meditation and they have ideas and desires as to how they want it to be. They expect the mind to be calm right away, but the old seeds and habits of turmoil are there, so the practitioners will have to experience their ripening. It's important to make efforts where this distress appears. We might feel we would be fine without such disciplines that cause us to feel bothered and oppressed. We could eat and sleep in comfort and at will. We could talk about whatever we like when we have the urge. We could go here and there as we wish and follow our impulses like this. This would bring well-being. The teaching of the Buddha talks about resisting, grating. Grating against things. The way of transcendence grates against the worldly. Right view grates against wrong view. Purity grates against impurity. These things are always going to be incompatible. In the scriptures there's a fable to illustrate this. Before the, the Buddha attained enlightenment, when he had accepted and eaten rice porridge from the milkmaid Sujata, he set the dish on the surface of a southerly flowing river and made the aspiration if I'm going to become a supremely awakened Buddha, may this dish flow north. And the dish flowed to the north. The dish symbolized his right view, the inherent Buddhahood of the mind's basic awareness that does not follow the inclinations of ordinary beings. At that moment, it was able to go against the current of all worldliness in his heart and not be influenced by anything. So now we have his teachings, which go against the flow of our habits. We have impulses of desire and attraction, but he tells us not to crave. We have the impulse to be angry and displeased over things, but he tells us not to be averse. We tend to be deluded about things, and he shows us how to destroy delusion. The teaching is always aimed at uprooting these habits. The Buddha's mind was going entirely against the currents of the world. The things that are normally said to be attractive and beautiful, he did not see as attractive and beautiful. The world said that the body belongs to oneself, but he did not see it as his own. The things that are said to be meaningful and valuable, he did not see as meaningful and valuable. His view was beyond the way of worldly beings, which merely clings to phenomena. This state of awareness arose in him. Following that, there is a legend of his receiving eight handfuls of grass from a Brahmin. He made a seat from it and vowed to attain enlightenment right there. If the inner meaning of this is explained, the eight handfuls of grass are the eight worldly dhammas. His efforts were to destroy them. This is what a practitioner must do, to destroy attachment to gain, status, praise, pleasure and their opposites. The grass was offered to him and he vowed to sit on it and enter meditative absorption. Sitting on it is a metaphor for suppressing the worldly dhammas. His mind was above them, bent on attaining the transcendental, the transcendental dharma. Transcendent is that which renders the worldly meaningless, like refuse, like rubbish. To him, gain and the rest were just refuse. He could sit on them, but they did not affect or obstruct him at all. 
are many um, useful, uh, significant <coughs> themes there. Uh, so first of all, the um, uh, entering into a practice of meditation requiring lots of uh, steadfastness and patience, patient endurance. Um, it's important to make effort where this distress appears. And another of Lumpur Cha's uh, regular statements was uh, that when you enter into the practice of Dhamma, you should expect a great deal of friction and difficulty. That's you know, that's the nature of it, because the, the flow of habits, the, the kind of conditioning of the mind is being countered, um, and so that the, the worldly habits are going to be frustrated, just like if you are uh, habituated to drinking tea or having sugar and or such like, that um, when you stop uh, when you stop the caffeine, when you stop the tea, then the body says, oh, <laughs> something is missing, I want some of that. Or you're giving up uh, sugar and so on. So that uh, we meet those uh, qualities of, of friction, and it's important to not think that, that just because things are, are difficult or there's an element of, of um, uh, uh, grating, as he puts it, uh, in going against the stream, that there's something wrong. Rather, the um, that's in a way the the sign that um, uh, you're prob- probably heading in the right direction. If all our our uh, old habits are not being uh, sort of fed and and looked after, um, so not that we're trying to make life more difficult or painful for ourselves, but that's a, that it's like if in any kind of athletic training, if you want to get fit. <laughs> you need to you need to start running or doing some exercise. You know, it doesn't just happen on its own. That there's uh, there's a, uh, a degree of sacrifice and engagement and, and effort that's involved. And it's interesting that the the word the English word ascetic uh, comes from the Greek ascesis, which is to tra- like a, uh, athletic training. So that uh, asceticism, uh, in terms of spiritual training, is directly compared to athletic training. That you know, if you want to win the race or you want to do well, then you need to get out and uh, exercise the, the, the body. Otherwise, it's not going to happen on its own. And so for the purpose of excelling in terms of physical discipline, then there's a sacrifice made. So it's exactly the same with the mind. If, you, the, wish is, if the wish is for uh, excellent mental qualities to be developed, then there needs to be a certain amount of engagement and ascesis in the, in the process. And then there's a story of the, the Buddha putting the dish onto the river um, with uh, um, uh, the river Niranjara, I think it was, and, uh, and uh, watching it flow in the, uh, against the stream. That uh, uh, is a very, uh, very common and um, potent symbol. And against the stream is how the Buddha often described um, the purpose of his teaching. The Eightfold Path goes against the, the stream of worldly thinking. And the uh, the eight handfuls of grass. It's also said that was kusa grass. So that the the kind of grass that's used to make the the water sprinkler. That's also kusa grass. So that uh, the uh, as I understand it, so it's a, it's a particularly kind of stiff kind of grass. And so that um, it would, that was the kind of grass that the Buddha was sitting on when he was enlightened. And so we use that for the not from the same bush in India, but, <laughs> but the same type of, of grass is used for making the water sprinklers. And that the eight handfuls of grass symbolize the uh, the eight worldly dharmas. Um, uh, 
gain, uh, gain and loss, praise and criticism, happiness and unhappiness, and fame and disrepute. Those are the 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 worldly dham, the worldly dhammas that the the bodhisattva was sitting on, uh, and to um, make that his his seat uh, for the uh, uh, his effort towards the final uh, realization of enlightenment. So, any thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes, Sophie. It was just a thought about the talking about um, going against the worldly stream and the image of going up, you know, the, the, the rice bottom. How does that kind of tally with another way that the stream is used in Buddhist sort of ideas? Is it being the stream entry, mm-hmm. which is a stage of enlightenment. Good question. So you've got the stream enterer, which is uh-huh. something one would aspire to, and yet you're not entering the stream. So could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, good question. Uh, when it's defined, um, I think it's um, a, a dialogue between the Buddha and Sariputta, and then the Buddha says, the stream, the stream, why is it called the stream? Um, and they, so the stream is the Eightfold Path. And that's the stream that is entered in the stream entry is the... Uh, it's used to describe the Eightfold Path. And that's like a specific, it's a short sutta, it just sort of specifies that's what's meant in stream entry, the eight, is the Eightfold Path, is the, the stream that's being entered. But um, yeah, I think it's just the, using the same word for completely different meanings. <laughs> and that the, and also that, that image of, of if you're in a, in a river being buffeted by the current, or if you're trying to walk in a riverbed against the the current of the, the, the river, or you're trying to, to row a boat upriver, up then it's a lot harder work to go against the current than to go with it. And that that's like a, a, a common everyday experience people would be, would be familiar with. So that sort of flow of worldly habits of chasing after the pleasant, uh, <coughs> fearing and re- resenting the painful, and uh, that is... An easy way to describe that is just like the the flow of worldly preferences and conditioning. It's a good question, uh, but the, uh, sometimes words get used for entirely different meanings in different circumstances. So, you have to look at the context of that. I had one thought <coughs> with the kusa grass. I think also they say that if you grasp it, it can cut your hand. That's right. So I was wondering if it was an analogy with the worldly dhammas, if you grasp them, then you can. It's yes, yeah, like that. The chan- one of the chants we do at the end of the Patimokha, that kusa grass, when um, unskillfully held, it'll, it'll cut your hand. It's, got a, it's quite stiff, the grass. And if, uh, you can, like a paper cut, you can get the cut from the, from the grass. So if you take hold of wholesomeness in an unskillful way, you can injure yourself. So a wrong grasping of wholesomeness. Is a is a part of that, and that's in that same that verse that is recited after Padimoka, um, the uh, just as kusa grass when wrongly held will cut the hand, so too the holy life lived unskillfully drags one to the lower states. So exactly in that way, like if there's the appearance of of wholesomeness, or, or that the uh, there's a a, whole, uh, a wholesome intention but it's being followed in a in a very egotistical way or a compulsive way or a competitive way or, or uh, such like then 
there's partly a wholesome intention, but it's being co-opted by other worldly attitudes. Okay, so to continue. Sitting in that place, many experiences arose in the mind of the teacher until he was able to reach enlightenment and conquer Mara, the evil one. He conquered the world, nothing else. He taught to develop the path that which can destroy the worldly dharmas, such as the grass was made into his throne of enlightenment. These days, most of us practitioners have little faith and devotion. We come to practice for a year or two and are full of desire for rapid attainment. We don't think about the Buddha, how he developed the perfections in order to become the supreme teacher. After leaving home, he exerted himself to the utmost for six years, practicing well, really training the mind and developing uh, practicing well, really training the mind and developing our qualities. We can gain experience, and then we can appreciate the virtues of the Buddha. At the very least, we should realize the first level of awakening. It's not just a matter of counting the months and years spent in practice. The mind should attain something. We'll have modesty, a sense of shame and fear towards wrong actions. This is extremely important. We who train properly will not dare to do wrong, whether it's in front of others or beyond their sight, in the light or in the dark, because we have approached the Buddha, meaning we've given rise to the one who knows within ourselves. We rely on the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, the three jewels, as our refuge. So this is uh, uh, the um, encouragement of Lumpur Chan, saying that uh, if you're giving yourself to Dhamma practice, you should at least realize the first level of, of awakening, stream entry. And uh, he did say, if, if you've been at Wat Bapong for five years and you haven't realized stream entry, you've been wasting your time, which was quite a challenging statement for him to make. <laughs> and he'd leave it up to people to make of it what they, what they chose to, but that was... Not uh, not uncommon, uh, as I understand it, for him to say that um, to encourage uh, that dedication. Not uh, again, not in terms of competition or uh, of the uh, the uh, self-centered habits of mind. I've got to attain. I've got to accomplish. You know, what will they think of me if I don't, and so on. But rather encouraging you know, effort based on mindfulness and wisdom, and the the um, the wish to make the best of one's uh, potential as a human being rather than getting lost in, in uh, the desire to become and um, competition and so forth. And then uh, in terms of uh, the um, Hiriotapa, he speaks about um, we shall have a, a, uh, we'll have modesty, a sense of shame and a fear towards wrong actions. So Hiriotapa, and this has been referred to quite a number of times earlier on, uh, it's good to understand um, how this is related to uh, the word shame in, in English often carries a, a very sort of pejorative, kind of negative tone to it that we want to not ever experience shame or guilt or feel, uh, feel self-critical. But it's important to, uh, uh, say, to see that hiriotapa is not based on self-view at all. So it's rather... Um, v uh, rather similar to physical pain. We don't like physical pain, but that's how it works. Physical pain does its job by being unpleasant. You know, if we injured ourselves and it felt good, <laughs> we get a lot of injuries and get a lot of infections. We never look after it, and, and we die of sepsis a long time ago. So our ancestors, who did not feel much pain, were the ones who didn't 
live and didn't have many offspring. The ones who did feel pain avoided trouble, looked after their injuries and dealt with their illnesses and uh, avoided dangerous situations. So they're the ones who had lots of offspring and here we are. <coughs> so that's how evolution works. Um, so that Hiriotapa is a, 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 a mental pain that is very much connected to our, our, our of, uh, moral sensitivity so that uh, the uh, quality of wisdom in Buddhist, uh, from the Buddhist perspective intrinsically involves a, 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 an attunement to the wholesome and the unwholesome. That if there is wisdom, if there's if there's genuine mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya, then with that there comes a a, a a sensitivity to what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, what is constructive, what is what is destructive, and so hiriyotapa is uh, the that modesty and uh, a, a sense of of uh, of shame uh, is really recognizing when there is an unwholesome intention or uh, something has been said or done that is is painful or hurtful or, or you know, dishonest or unkind, then that's, that hurts. You know, that, that's a, a, a reflex in the heart that says, oh, that wasn't quite true, or that wasn't very kind, or that was a bit selfish, or that was a, the, there was a, a laziness or a, a greediness there. And so that's painful, but that's how it does its job. So if that is then co-opted by self-view, like, oh, I'm a greedy person, I'm a lazy person, I'm so jealous, and and uh, narrow-minded and so forth, then that's an unskillful use of hiriotapa. That's like the, the misuse of hiriotapa. Um, so uh, uh, they are known as the guardians of the world. They're they the lokopala. They are the, the great protectors, just like physical pain. It works by being unpleasant. Hiriotapa similarly works by being unpleasant. That's how it does its job. <laughs> and so... Uh, as uh, uh, as Lumpur Cha would also often point out, that, that the more spiritually developed someone uh, a being becomes, then the stronger Hiriyotapa gets. It's not like you're more shameless or more <laughs> kind of insensitive, but rather the mind is uh, more acutely aware of you know, slight distortions of truth when you're speaking or or ways that you could have been more careful in looking after other living creatures or that... Uh, the mind is is very alert to any kind of unskillfulness, unwholesomeness, and and similarly to what is wholesome and the beneficial results of that. So that it's uh, hiriotapa gets stronger, <laughs> the more uh, so the the mind gravi- uh, evolves towards uh, I- enlightenment, and so that might seem counterintuitive. You think, well, I'd like to be uh, more comfortable about everything. You know, the more enlightened I become. <laughs> If you like you know, thinking in those terms, um, but it's uh, the the way that it works is that the um, hiriyotapa getting stronger, and that's tied together with mindfulness and wisdom. So there's a much more of a of a, an accurate attunement to the time, the place, the situation, who you're with, what's going to be useful to talk about, um, what is bringing helpful um, results, what's bringing uh, obstructive results, so that the um, that acute attention then guides skillful action and speech and so that it's uh, in a way having a, a more um, sort of a, say reliable and you know, sort of comprehensively attuned system so that you can you can feel and know what's going on and attune to it more and more completely so that you're you're uh, you're paying very close attention and very 
sensitive uh, and aware of what's going on so that action can be more fully and completely aligned with w- what is wholesome. And then uh, I would say Hiriyotapa, they're, they're fulfilled in an arahant who, who physically cannot tell a lie. It can't deliberately take life. It's like it, it, it cannot be done. And which in the Buddha also speaks about, and I, I quote quite regularly, that you know, an arahant is not restraining themselves from killing things. It's like there's nothing in them that could make that move to deliberately take the life of anything or to deliberately tell a lie and so forth. So that uh, that uh, it, it's it kind of goes counter to some of the Western psychological or therapeutic um, approach. But I feel it's one of those areas that it's it's, uh, it's good to appreciate. Also, when Lumpur Sumedha was um, designing the temple here at Amravati with the architect Tom Hancock, he uh, he Lumpur commissioned Pang Chinasai to do these two portraits outside the, the doors of the, the two devas uh, either side of the main doors. They represent Hiri and Otapa. That's what they they are. That was Lumpur Sumedha's request. He asked Ch- uh, Pang to to uh, to do this sort of traditional representation even though they're psychological qualities they are uh, represented in sort of uh, humanized or deified form uh, in physical form uh, symbolic form sometimes and so Lumpur Sumedha had seen that in uh, in uh, monasteries in Thailand uh, in the past and I thought well, that's really good how about the guardians of the temple should be Hiri and Otapa and so that's what those the one's got a, a red surround and the other one's got a blue surround outside the doors. Most people just walk past and say, oh, nice Davis. Or <laughs> but the, that's what they represent, that uh, the entering the temple, the, the guardians of the temple are here in Ottapa. So the guardians of the jitta are, are that moral sensitivity and the um, wise fear of consequences. So any thoughts, questions, reflections? Don't be shy. Yes. The divas, the painting divas, they look very cheerful. It's not scary at all compared to the Tibetan style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they often sometimes they have yakas as uh, protecting, as sort of dharma protectors. But uh, yeah, they are. Um, uh, they are. They are, are quite bright beings. The, the uh, guardians of the world. They are. They are uh, uh, enjoying their job. Some t- some temples in Thailand you get yakas with big, big sticks and fangs and so forth, but they are benevolent yakas, ones that are protectors of the Dhamma. John, who, who are the figures in this this room? Uh, Those are also paint also painted by Pang, and I think it's um, the left deva and the right deva. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they uh, have any specific um, yeah. ancestry, but their Pang donated them. Maybe Lumpur Sumedha would remember. Um, I d- I, I, they're, they're done by Pang, the same artist, but um, uh, what the story was behind those, I'm not quite sure. Things arrive in monasteries. Sometimes they just land in a particular place. There's no 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 great symbolic sense. And they just landed there because they needed a place to land. And then, <laughs> then people kind of sometimes create whole stories of why that's sitting there to create a particular message, a particular signal. But uh, it was uh, 
I think we had them in the in the sala, and then we, we did a redecoration of the sala, and we thought, well, where are we, where are we going to put those? Um, and so then we were trying to find a place to put them, and so then we and we thought, well, will the, will the red on the background of the devas, will it clash with the red on these five <laughs> panels? We thought, well, we'll just hang them there and see if anybody objects. <laughs> And then, they, and it was kind of interesting that they moved all the way over here to this totally different building, and they're still in the same places. And uh, there's probably a few people who have created their whole kind of symbology around what they mean and why they're here. But it's just they landed there because they needed to be somewhere. Yes, you're going to ask something. Yeah, because I'm, I discussed with my colleagues about this. Um, I, I was thinking that he's about killing or not killing beyond. Because he cannot hurt. He, he, cannot, he cannot do the uh, devil. But, for example, there are some contexts when he can lie or not in extreme uh, situations. Uh, not to kill, for example. Uh, in a... In, t- in, a, in the Theravada tradition, a, a bodhisattva cannot tell a lie, they, uh, or, or let alone an arahant. For example, if, if he wants to hide uh, 100 people for some enemies, and the enemies come to him and say, have you seen those 100 people? He can say, no, I haven't seen them, maybe. That doesn't happen in the Theravada scriptures. <laughs> That so it, so in, the, with this. in the northern Buddhist world, you, you get that, where a, you know, a bodhisattva or, uh, will tell lies or will take life. or uh, like the, uh, But in the, in the Theravada scriptures, it, it's very interesting. Uh, I often quote this, that there's a partic- in one of the Jataka stories, it specifically says how um, in the many, many previous lifetimes of the bodhisattva, uh, who became Gautama Buddha? Uh, he uh, he took life. He stole. He engaged in sexual misconduct. He used uh, not, uh, alcohol and drugs and such like. But he never deliberately told a lie, because to deliberately tell a lie is completely antithetical to the Dhamma. So, and it's it specifically says during those many many lifetimes, he he broke uh, four of the five precepts. Uh, and quite, um, uh, and, they, and it's there in the Jataka stories, all kinds of tales of that nature. But he never told a lie because as soon as he made the Bodhisattva vow, it was impossible to tell a lie. So that, and I feel that's very significant. Uh, to, that it's, and, and it explains it because to deli- to deliberately tell a lie goes completely against the Dharma. So that's uh, that's that's impossible uh, for a Bodhisattva to to do that. And so, and also, it's interesting that that was the instruction that the Buddha gave to his son when he was a young boy, Rahula, when he became a novice, was about lying and how to to, to tell a deliberate lie, even as a joke, you know, is is something that uh, is to be uh, avoided at all costs. But yeah, in the in the northern Buddhist world, they uh, there's a different take on things and a kind of expedient means. Um, and uh, so that, it, but it's it's very different in the southern Buddhist world. 
which I feel is worthy of contemplation. Well, uh, you to do the best you can to protect your own life, but uh, you uh, to deliberately take the life of another being is something to be avoided at all costs. I would say. But, uh, yes. Cockroaches. Cockroaches. Yeah. We had a quarter yeah. of a million cockroaches at a Vaigiri at one point. And what did they in do? one little house. What did they do? We, dis- we had a lot of discussions. <laughs> <laughs> they were everywhere, absolutely everywhere. There were many, many discussions over a long period of time. And they, they became so abundant, they're actually inside the clock of the microwave. Oh, wow. Like, like really everywhere. <laughs> Uh, well, for that, that particular instance, we had many, many discussions and went back and forth and back and forth. And eventually, um, the, um, the the lay committee's uh, Sangapala Foundation, we realized that if we don't do something, the monastery will be shut down mm. as a health hazard. Mm. And if, if the local um, authorities come around, then... The, the place will be shut down and then they would d- destroy all of the cockroaches anyway and possibly even demolish the buildings. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, the, eventually, uh, the Sankapala Foundation they board, they, they said they would take responsibility for calling in the exterminators. Mm. And so then um, that was agreed to by the Sangha on the basis that then we had to, we learned a lot about cockroaches. Ajahn Sudanto in particular was incredibly knowledgeable by the end of this whole process. <laughs> Amazing amount of research. And so we learnt how to make a, a, an unfriendly environment for cockroaches. And so that um, we like using Lysol uh, or kind of disinfectants to clean all the surfaces, having everything completely dried off. Um, so yeah, we learned this whole set of procedures if we're going to do, uh, if we're going to do this, if this is going to be agreed to, then um, we have to do everything we can to not let this kind of infestation happen again. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, and uh, to give Ajahn Sudanto in particular credit, you know, he he did an amazing amount of research, and then we had a whole sort of set of protocols that we were all then agreed to follow, and uh, and it managed to protect the place from another infestation. Mm-hmm. And we we th- the the thought was it was probably just one cockroach in a, like in a bag of potatoes that's, that came in just sitting in the larder and then and Ajahn Sudanda would come to the morning meeting and say do you realise and he kind of found out some new fact about cockroaches incredible viability they're just amazingly successful creatures and that you know one um, one uh, uh, pregnant female can produce, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of offspring, and, if, and that uh, 
they just need a, a, an extraordinarily small amount of stuff to survive on. So that we realize, well, they, they are, they're very evolved creatures. <laughs> they really know how to survive. So it was, a, it was a strange kind of respectfulness. But you're also realizing that either we do, uh, you know, something is done and the lay committee take responsibility for it, or we close the monastery. That's the, the only other option that we had. Wasn't there something about a rat infestation at Watford Pond? I remember there was a story about uh, ants. Ants. It wasn't rats. It was it was ants. Yeah. They every every year in in Thailand you have a kind of war between the red ants and the black ants, and one year the red ants failed altogether. There was like uh, there were there were that their whole something went something was was weird with their population of the red ants so the the black ants didn't have their natural opponents or competition and so then they multiplied by you know a you know, staggering degree so these these black ants were, were everywhere they go on the footpaths on the cooties on the handrails and it's everywhere and again there was many 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 uh, discussions about what to do and so the people you could you couldn't walk anywhere without or touch anything without these uh, ants being sort of in your hands or under your feet and so on. And eventually they, they let the army come in and do a whole spraying operation. But again, it was similar; like it was just so um, uh, sort of massive an infestation. And it's either you, every, everybody moves out and just leaves the place to the ants. <laughs> And uh, or else action is taken, and so then that was the the, the decision there. Those are, uh, but also, you know, those are tough decisions to make, but uh, and they do arise from time to time. But as long as there's uh, a lot of discussion about what's the best way forward, you're taking into account all the different considerations, um, and you're doing the best you can to to move creatures along. I remember when you were a nun at uh, at Chithurst, you had some mice <laughs> that you found that they were being exported from the from the main, from the monks' dwellings up at the main house and they were put into the forest and they ended up in the in the in the nuns' cottage. Oops! <laughs> then we found out actually you have to move mice like four or five miles away, otherwise they'll find their way back. They come back. Yeah. Across uh, across a river is good. Yes. If you can take the other side of a river, then that's often helpful. I think the, these these kind of dilemmas, if you like, kind of, in a way they're called dilemmas, aren't they? Or however you want to, they do come up quite a bit. I find in, in their life, and you you know, you, not on the scale of an infestation of a monastery and you have a whole sangha and you keep keeping an eye, but they come up quite regularly, mm-hmm. and you have to somehow work out in your own mind what, you know, and it's useful to hear you talk about it just because I find they come up. Like, please. <laughs> I I'm very prone to please. Shall I stop? <laughs> it's okay. No, I mean, they, that, that's why the, you know, the, the precepts are their training rules and you, they're, they're guidelines, and you do the best you can with them. But also the Buddha realized, I mean, he was extraordinarily attuned to the practicalities of the world and human nature, 
and so their their guidelines you know I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature so that you you're doing the best you can to be fully respectful of, of all life but you know you're living in the world you have a body that is clumsy and dangerous <laughs> and sensitive so you you do the very best you can with a heart of respect and but you uh, there's always going to be things along the way that that uh, are, are challenges and so the having those guidelines to be respectful of life and you know, the other precepts to the ex- the fullest extent possible you know you do what you can and the rest you have to let go of yeah, it's good questions so, to continue if we truly rely on the buddha for refuge we must come to see the buddha we will see the Dhamma and the Sangha. We recite the formula of refuge in the Three Jewels, but still, we don't really know the Buddha. Are we close to him? Are we far from him? What is the Dharma? What is the Sangha? We request their protection as our refuge, but are we close to them yet? Do we know what they are? We request with body and speech, but our minds have not reached there. Once the mind attains and is able, we'll know exactly what the qualities of the three jewels are. We will know the Buddha has such and such characteristics, the Dharma is thus, and so on. This will be our experience. We will have this refuge because these things have arisen in our minds. Then, wherever we may be, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are there with us. Thus, we will not perform wrong actions. So, the first Arya, noble one, Kundanya, was freed from falling into the lower realms. This was something definite. He could only follow the straight path and there would be no eighth rebirth because the path had been shown and he had attained certainty. Sooner or later, he was bound to reach the end of the path. There was no way he could ever return to performing wrong actions by way of body or speech. He had gone beyond the sort of turmoil that is actually hell itself. So it said that the Arya is freed from the lower realms. Even if he or she is mistaken about something, it's nothing strong enough to throw him or her into a lower rebirth. The mind cannot go that way anymore. It cannot return to its old ways. This is called the Aryan birth, and it can happen in this life. These are things that can only be known by the individual through direct experience. We talk about Dharma and are supposedly practicing Dharma, but we, really, but we don't really know what Dharma is. Understanding Dharma, seeing Dharma, practicing Dharma, what is it all about? This is really a problem for us. It is nature, the ordinary, that is already present, things existing as they are. Why are we now under the sway of happiness and suffering, gladness and dejection? Because we don't know Dharma, we do not see Dharma. So again, a few essential themes there, and then... Uh, as uh, he was saying earlier on in the the, the teaching Buddha um, is the uh, awakened awareness of the the heart that the the puru the one who knows or the the element of knowing that is the the, the Buddha refuge and saying you know, the Buddha hasn't gone anywhere that that is a uh, a quality that is accessible to us that uh, we can um, uh, say draw upon and can be a guiding influence for for this life, and uh, and he's saying quite emphatically, don't think the Buddha has uh, has gone away. You know, <laughs> the the Buddha that is the refuge is right here, and that uh, 
is that which is knowing uh, the uh, the flow of perception and experience and action. And then uh, when he talks about Dharma, then he says uh, it is nature, the ordinary. So in the in the Thai language, uh, the word for ordinary is tamada, which it comes from the Pali dhammata, which literally means of the nature of dhamma. So if you say something is tamada, it's just it's ordinary, it's kind of unremarkable, it's not special. So when that legend Chah says, it is nature, uh, and the word for, for nature in Thai is tamachat, which comes from dhamma jati, born of the dhamma. So right in the language, <laughs> you've got this extremely large clues that, uh, that the, um, uh, the ordinary, dhamma is, is hidden within the ordinary, or well, not even very well hidden, because it's there in, uh, as part of the embodiment of the ordinary, what is familiar, what is natural. And then nature, dhammajati, uh, 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 that which is born of the dhamma, is uh, the natural order. So then talking about uh, Venerable Kandanya, Anukandanya, and then, um, so probably many of you are familiar with this kind of schema for stream entry. So uh, one, uh, a being who has realized stream entry uh, is not able to be born in any of the lower realms. So a stream enter can't be born as an animal, uh, as a ghost, or in the hell realms. So they said the, the, ga- the gates to the lower realms are closed, which is uh, one of the things that makes stream entry very popular to, in the public uh, aspiration. So the lo- gates to the lower realms are closed. And then his mention of, of um, uh, there'll be no eighth rebirth uh, also, it's said quite frequently that w- when the, uh, the stream entry has been realized, then this guarantees total enlightenment within the next seven births. So there'll be no more than seven lifetimes, and any of those lifetimes, either in the human realm or in the Deva realm or um, Brahma realms. And so that um, the gates to the lower realms are closed, and the enlightenment is guaranteed within the next seven lifetimes. So... Um, some people are a bit allergic to the idea of past lives and future lives, that, uh, that not every Buddhist or practice person practicing Buddha Dhamma likes those ideas. And so that they say, well, how does that work? If you don't believe in past lives and future lives, how does this seven lifetimes work? You know? And so um, one, one way that I've characterized that, and it, uh, I think um, uh, Lumpur Chah kind of uses a, a similar way of, of uh, referring to it, even if he is she or she is mistaken about something, it's nothing strong enough to throw him or her into a lower rebirth. So, on a personal psychological level, it means you can only really get lost a maximum of seven times, and it gets harder and harder to get lost each time. You feel more of an idiot each time. Like, how could I have done that? That was like totally stupid. Like, <laughs> I'm definitely not going to do that again. Oh, I did it again, but definitely not anymore. So that that's one way of reading that. It's not canonical, but it, um, uh, personally, I've always been comfortable with the idea of past lives and future lives. I and mean, I came across that as a concept at the age of about eight or nine, outside of the Buddhist field. But um, that made perfect sense to me. So, oh right, well that that seems much more realistic. The idea of coming out of nowhere and then living one human life and then going to heaven or hell forever. That which is a sort of Church of England Christianity model. It's like, this seems totally weird to me. <laughs> and from, a, from early childhood, when I'm going to Sunday school or having 
religious education classes at school. It's like, that just does not make sense. And so when I came across um, the idea of past lives and future lives uh, when I was about eight or nine years old, I remember thinking, right, that's much more. That makes perfect sense. So I've never had any difficulty with that. And people sometimes they say, Ajahn, you've got a background in science. You know, how, how can you possibly believe this kind of nonsense? You, know, you don't really believe that, do you? And quite sincerely, I said, well, uh, Ajahn Jayasara has this wonderful expression of a, an, an irrational disbelief in, in rebirth for, <laughs> for many Western uh, materialists, an irrational disbelief in, in uh, rebirth. That's a very neat way of expressing it. But uh, yeah, so it, uh, that uh, and some people just can't stand the idea of past lives and future lives, and so that is a, a way of uh, figuring it or, think, or considering it, reflecting on it. I think it, I feel is quite relevant. Yes, you you can lose your way, you can get distracted and get lost, but uh, no more than than seven times to get really you know, really falling off the track and dropping into a ditch. So, any thoughts, reflections? Yes. I want to tell some that uh, I was growing up in the Buddhist country, but during this um, about eight or nine years old, growing up until teenager, I I didn't believe in uh, past lives too. Oh no, I didn't believe in past lives because in in that country at that time it was more of science, and I was like in Bangkok. Mm -hmm. You study in the school like that, so I lost that uh, belief. Made no sense. Recently, when uh, twelve years ago, when I you know uh, immersed myself in Dhamma, I started uh, do research and like Ian Stevenson mm -hmm. research and one more movies in the West now Netflix about this uh, reincarnation and past life. Now it's uh, really oh yes, and then uh, <laughs> no, this is much IFS the what is it the the Goldstein talk. Okay, uh, that is the, I listened first time and I really believe in it now. Uh, he talked about Stipatana Sutta and one of the right view, he was talking about uh, understanding and belief in past life. Mm -hmm. And he uh, put up this uh, tape of the a young child. Damaruan. Yeah, chanting, beautiful. Mm -hmm. And now he grown up and married and become mm -hmm. monk, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. I was talking about him the other day. Yes. So uh, yeah, he was. Um, and the par he started reciting large amounts of Pali as a young child, just very very small. And it was in a style, an accent that didn't that doesn't e exist in modern times. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and he had memories of of being a monk with Acharya Buddhaghosa, yes. and so that he had a lot of the Visuddhimagga memorized. As a young child, he had you know he, even before he could read, you know he could recite all this stuff. So it was a it was a a big uh, thing in Sri Lanka, and then these recordings of his uh, of this little boy chanting all this Pali because circulated around the, the Buddhist world <laughs> in that uh, that era. But yeah, it also it's interesting that it, it turned into quite a problem for him because people assumed he's an arahant or he's some kind of special being, and but he just had these memories, and so. He got to, um, made into a superstar 
and then he he had to to back off and just leave it all alone and go and say I'm just going to go and be a mechanic or, or go to, <laughs> go and study engineering at college <laughs> and uh, live an ordinary life because he was he realized people were inflating him too much but he realized, he, he saw that it's just me- you know memory it's not any sign of any particular attainment mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, so those kind of things um i i i find it it's makes perfect sense it's completely ordinary to me so i've never felt any remote skepticism about how that works and so that um uh, it, it surprises me that people find it so hard to to deal with <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, it's, that's commonly the case when people say, oh, "I really can't get my mind around that," and my first thought is, "Oh, really?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> Almost always, because so, it seems like so, like the law of conservation of energy is in terms of physics. It seems to be very, very closely related to that law of conservation of consciousness. That there's a momentum of habits and actions that they don't just come out of nowhere or disappear into nothing, but they. Yeah, the uh, there's the laws of cause and effect that that have their their um, their ripples. So yeah, so that uh, I've never had any difficulty with that. And yeah, there's many many stories that you come across that are uh, very very reliable. They uh, just went many years ago when I was living at Harnham uh, in the early mid '80s. There was a um, Sri Lankan doctor as a psychiatrist at the hospital in uh, in Newcastle and uh, uh, the, he had a uh, they had a, a son who was about seven years old at this time and they were uh, the 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 parents brought the the, the boy to to Harnham and uh, they said he had these very vivid memories of, of growing up in Sri Lanka in a different family mm-hmm. and that uh, and so they came to talk about how they how they felt about this, how they dealt with it, because when he was about two, he said, "Can I go home? Yeah, I want to go home." And they said, "Well, you are home." I said, "No, I want, I want to my my mother, my mother and father. You're, you know, you're nice people, but you're not my mum and dad." <laughs> so they, and he was a psychiatrist, so he was like, "Well, this is interesting." <laughs> and so they started asking him questions, and he could remember the. the he said, my, "Well, what, what's your mother's name?" Said you know this this woman's name and, and what's your father called and said the name of father and said and where do you live and he named this village, and and so then they, being kind of investigative types they followed it up, and when they were visiting Sri Lanka they found yeah there's a village there, and they found a couple, and their son had died uh, when the uh, in a burglary, mm-hmm. he was he was. Um, uh, a, a burglar had broken into the house and he'd woken up and disturbed the burglar and the burglar had, had knocked him on the head, killed him. And uh, and this little boy had a birthmark on the side of his head. Wow. And, you, you know, you could see, you know, like, it's like, okay, come over here, come and lift your hair up and it was kind of showing on the side, a kind of a half-moon-shaped birthmark on the side of his head. And... Uh, and so he, uh, by the time I met the boy, he was about seven or eight. He said, "I'm starting to forget. It's not so clear now." But they, uh, they met the family. They went to, uh, and they, they kind of, and they said, "Yeah, our, our boy was about twenty years old when he died." So they, they got to know the the, the family and uh, how he ended up in Newcastle. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? But it was like you know, you couldn't make that up. 
It's like why, why would a, a, a you know a young professional couple living in this country? Uh, there's no reason why they would make up a story like that. And then there was, and there was, they, why would they come and tell the monks at Hana Monastery if this wasn't true? And then it just all made perfect sense to me. And that, uh, so those kind of incidents are, are not uncommon. Just recently, there's a less script about this reincarnation. What is the name? It's very interesting. Um, the, this is a true story, a documentary. Now, there's there's many, many, many now. that's just one, per, one, one particular uh, mm. inci- uh, incident, but um, yeah, they, so the family became quite interested in the field, <laughs> the lad having sort of a, he's quite memory, because it's like, why would he ever have heard of that, that village, you know, it was too small to even read, you know, but he knew the name of the village, it's like 20 or 30 miles outside of Colombo. Dhammaruan, yeah. He, he, he was telling the town, go so fast. Now he's going old. He was married. He's, distru- he's become mom. Mm-hmm. He's old. But when I listened to that thing, this was, you know, the boy. Time goes by, yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, the, the cassettes, it was, cassettes were circulating of Dhammaruan's chanting. That was, some of you probably never even heard of cassettes. <laughs> But uh, that was about yeah early eighties, and he was about six or seven by that time. So those were circulating around. And hey, have you heard this? <laughs> but that you know, nineteen eighty three was forty years ago. Mm. <laughs> time goes by. I have it on my iPad. <laughs> the, uh, ghosting talk. So maybe read a little bit more. The Buddha intended for us to be free of attachment to the five aggregates, to lay them down and give up involvement with them. We cannot give them up, however, because we don't really know them for what they are. We believe happiness to be ourselves. We see ourselves as happy. We believe suffering to be ourselves, and we see ourselves as unhappy. We can't pull the mind out of this view, which means we are not seeing nature. There isn't any self involved, but we're always thinking in terms of self. Thus it seems that happiness happens to us, suffering happens to us, elation happens to us, depression happens to us. The chain of self is constructed, and with this solid feeling that there is a self, everything seems to be happening to us. So the Buddha said to destroy this conception, this block called self. When the concept of self is destroyed and finished, we're free of the belief that there's a self in the body, and then the condition of selflessness is naturally revealed. Believing that there is me and mine living with selfishness, everything is understood as being a self, or belonging to a self, or somehow relating to a self. When the phenomena of nature are seen thus, there's no real understanding. If nature appears to be good, we laugh and rejoice over it. If phenomena appear to be bad, we cry and lament. Thinking of natural phenomena as constituting ourselves or something we own, we create a burden of suffering to carry. If we realized the truth of things, we would not have all the drama of excitement, elation, grief and tears. It is said, pacification is true happiness. 
tesang upasamo sukho. And this comes when attachment is rooted out through seeing reality. Reality exists in the phenomena of nature, in their appearing, changing and disappearing. That is their truth. It is people who are not true. We become excited by things, but phenomena are not excited in themselves. We become attached to things, wanting them to be a certain way, taking them to be ours. We react with extreme emotions depending on whether they seem to, to turn out in the right way or the wrong way, meaning whether they turn out according to our desires. Thus, Anyakundanya saw the nature of all things. His view was transformed in the moment when he first heard the teaching of the Buddha. He saw clearly and truly. From that moment on, whatever he encountered, he just saw arising and passing away. Pleasant and unpleasant phenomena still kept appearing to his mind, but he merely recognized their appearance. There was no way he could again fall into the states of extreme suffering that are called the lower realms. His mind firmly established in awareness, he could no longer react to things with gladness or dejection. So it said that Kandanya received the eye of Dharma that sees according to reality. Wisdom knowing the truth of all existence was born in him. This is one who knows and sees Dharma. When one knows and renounces and lets go of things, lays down the burden. We try to bear giving things up, employing forced endurance and renunciation, but we don't see Dharma through this. When one really attains and sees, there's nothing to be endured or given up. When one sees Dharma, there's only Dharma, and in Dharma there is no enduring or renouncing. But when we don't yet know and realize Dharma, when it's not our being, we have to apply the conventions of Dharma, exerting ourselves in various practices. We have to apply effort because, the tendency, because of the tendency towards laziness. We employ endurance and forbearance because of a lack of determination and an inability to bear things and restrain ourselves. But if one has practiced well and is habituated to it, no kind of forced effort is needed. So I feel that's very worthy of consideration. Uh, that uh, employing forced endurance and renunciation we try to bear giving things up employing forced endurance and renunciation but we don't see dharma through this when one really attains and sees there's nothing to be endured or given up and so the, you know, the title of the book is being dharma so what does the dharma having to endure what does the dharma have to give up or what can it get doesn't make any sense so being Dharma, then there's nothing to endure, nothing to give up, nothing to, uh, nothing to be uh, deprived of. So it, uh, it represents that quality of uh, a fullness of, of being itself. So that's the end of that talk, and I'll leave it there for today.